This is Cabernet and True Crime, the place where good wine and true crime come together. So, hi, hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Cabernet and True Crime podcast. So, this was supposed to be a patron-exclusive episode, and there wasn't supposed to be a True Crime Tuesday this week um, because of the double overlap and just my lack of ability to do both at one time, and I am just so friggin' excited about so many things that um, I'm ixnaying the patron-exclusive episode for this month, so sorry. Patrons, I'll make it up to you, probably. <laughs> no, I really will. I haven't decided on what yet. I'm just too excited about a lot of things going on right now. And I've got, man, not so much as announcements to make, but like just stuff to talk about. And so I figured I'd rather just do this and know that everybody knows instead of being like, did I remember who I talked to and like what's going on? So here we are. Um, as some of you may know, I am no stranger to mental health issues. And I'm not afraid to talk about it or, you know, whatever. It really doesn't bother me that much. Um, so I have anxiety, which leads to um, depression, obsessive compulsive disorder, um, just all around general nervousness. And I don't know if I said depression, but if I did depression again. So the a couple months ago, like maybe a month and a half ago, my therapist had suggested me taking Prozac. And, you know, I really said, no, I didn't want to. But um, I was trying to do it like in a holistic fashion of like, well, running and meditation and counseling and like seeing what I could do to avoid taking medication for um, my um, depression and all that. So um, come flash forward to about a week ago, I finally pulled the trigger and I was like, no, I really everything I was trying to help myself made it worse because every time I tried to, you know, fix my issues and they didn't work in my mind, I was just digging myself deeper and deeper into deeper and like feeling like shit. So, um, it came to the point where I said, you know what, screw it. I'm going to try Prozac and let's see how this goes. Um, I am a week in and holy macaroni. I know it's still too early to tell, but like dudes, I'm in such a better emotional place already, I can just tell. So either it's psychosomatic and I'm just believing it because I'm thinking it's working or it's actually working. Whatever it is, I'll take it. If it's a placebo, I don't mind. Like this is, I feel great. It's fine. So um, in the midst of, you know, me coming out of this, whatever I was, whatever was going on with myself. So like the issue was I was finding like everything annoying, like everything from, you know, watching forensic files to like reading a book to laying in bed, like all of it, like existing was annoying to me. I was frustrated. I hated everything. And I didn't want to do anything from like going to work to researching for this podcast to like just doing anything. Like I really wasn't in the mood for it. But now, you know, I'm really jacked and I'm excited because this is a really important time for me. Um, so I, as some of you may know, I am competing in NaNoWriMo. Um, which is National Novel Writing Month. I participated last year and failed utterly, but did write half a book. Um, this year I am preparing and I have my outline done and my characters made and I'm like ready to fucking kill NaNoWriMo. So um, I'm really excited for that. But while I'm preparing for that, things have gotten a little bit hectic. So um, 
I'm, I'm just a little overwhelmed. It's not in like a bad way. It's in a good way because I've got so many good ideas for this and so many good ideas for my book that like I don't know how to implement them in a way that makes any amount of sense and doesn't kill me with how busy it is. So um, as you may recall, if you watched any of the Serial Killer Sunday um, episodes, the Serial Killer Shorts on YouTube, they're a clusterfuck and so are the patron exclusive episodes, if you pardon my French. They... I, my camera doesn't work. I bought a camera specifically for like recording these things and it, it doesn't connect with the computer that I have and also the quality is like hot trash, just hot garbo all around. So I'm, I'm going to ditch that idea for right this second and just, so you will be seeing Serial Killer Shorts are going to be podcasts for the time being. I will revisit the YouTube idea after just after November. And November, I don't know how many days are in November, but December 1st, we'll revisit the idea of having that on YouTube. Until then, we're going to put them on the podcast as 10-minute episodes of Serial Killer Shorts. You won't get to see my gorgeous face or Penny. Um, And you know what? That's fine. It is what it is. So that's that. And on top of that, I have so many other ideas, but I just, that's the one thing I really needed to tell you, that the YouTube videos are dying for the time being. Um, Patron-exclusive episodes might even come onto um, a podcast and just be that instead. I have to see if that'll work in a way where you can get... Like, I can put them on the page, Patreon page. I haven't looked into that yet. I'm, I'm kind of rambling at this point, so just bear with me. So sorry there's a lot of announcements. I'm just kind of really, really excited. I'm hyped up on a lot of good energy. I have Chipotle on the way right now. I am just so fucking jacked. I'm in a good mood. So I hope you guys are as excited as I am. Oh yeah. And merch. Merch is happening. Like it's a thing. It's officially the balls are rolling. It's really going to happen. Um, I need to figure out the final logistics of that, but there will be t-shirts and I'm excited and I'm yelling. I've noticed. So sorry. Um, yeah, t-shirts. I should be getting my prototype sometime soon. Um, the girl I'm working with from Milk T-Shirt Company, I think it's Milk and Crackers, is her, that's her picture on um, Instagram. I don't know. I share her stuff all the time. She went viral for her um, probably thinking about uh, food or serial killers t-shirt. I'm so excited for her. She's so awesome. Um, so I'm working with her to do the shirts uh, just because she's dope and she's also a true crime lover and at least I'm assuming she is with all her shirts, and she's just cool, so, um, we're finally, we're, like, hammering out the last logistics of that, and then t-shirts will be a thing. How freaking cool. So, just in time for Christmas to buy all your true crime friends my shirt. (laughs) Um, yeah. Okay. So let's stop rambling since we're set. Well, I, technically I wasn't rambling. That was a lot of good information for you and me to kind of sort out. So um, today we're going to be talking about Amelia Dyer. There is still an episode. I'm sorry, patrons. This one was meant for you. And it's going to be kind of a long one. So, you know, this is just going to be a really long episode. Also, someone informed me that Podcoin is not a thing. And I checked and they're right. It's not. So hopefully this will be on Spotify. My goal tonight is to figure out how to get this fucking podcast on Spotify again. So hopefully you'll see an announcement later about it being on Spotify. <laughs> okay, so Amelia Dyer, um, she's older and kind of spooky and uh, like just kind of around over the top. Like everything about this is insane and there's a lot of rabbit holes. So I'm really excited to be talking about this one. Um, I had a lot of fun 
Well, and you know, I say fun arbitrarily, as in like fun researching serial killers is not a sentence you should say. Because um, I guess fun's not the right word. I was interested the whole time. So we're going to go with that. I was interested the whole time. Because um, sometimes, you know, you check out and you're like, oh, like this one's not very interesting. This one's kind of interesting. Um, so Amelia Dyer was born as Amelia Elizabeth Hobley in Pyle Marsh, Bristol, England, um, in 1836. I do not know her exact birthday. Um, she was the fifth child of a master shoemaker named Samuel Hobley and his wife, Sarah. Amelia had three older brothers and a sister, and Amelia learned to read and write and loved literature, so she had a good childhood. Um, so her childhood would have been a good one, and she would have grown up to be a relatively normal adult, I, one could presume, um, if she had not seen her mom being, like, ravaged by mental illness caused by typhus. Um, so this is the first rabbit hole we go down. So I looked into, like, what exactly is typhus? And because the articles I read just said typhus, um, that means it's most likely epidemic louse-borne typhus. Um, just, like, honestly, just because of the way it's worded, there are, like, like, six different types of typhus you could get. Um, but this one's, like, the general typhus. Um, so symptoms are a severe headache, sustained high fever, cough, rash, severe muscle pain, chills, stupor, sensitivity to light, delirium, and ultimately death. Um, so a rash starts about five days after the fever appears, and, like, basically her mom just went bananas, and she had to take care of her while her mom was dying. Um, I don't remember if it's a quick death or not. I'm assuming not. Um, so Amelia was forced to take care of her mother, and then uh, her mom actually died in 1848, so Amelia would have been about 12 at the time. Amelia had an older sister named Sarah Ann, who died in 1841 at the age of six, so she would have been born just before Amelia's um, conception. So yeah, I had this all mapped out that like, Amelia's first, like, so Sarah Ann would have been born in 1835 and died in 1841. So Amelia was born sometime in 1846. Um, so she passed away. And then, like, yes, sorry, this was worded really, I wrote this really strangely. Um, and then she had a younger sister, also named Sarah Ann, who died in 1845, who was only a couple months old. My question is, why would you name, why would you name a child after a dead sibling? just personal, you know, I don't, just try again, I don't understand, I don't know, um, so Amelia had two siblings with the same name who were the closest in age to her, and they died very suddenly, and then her mom also passed away, and I'm assuming that must have been very difficult on Amelia, um, so after her mother, who's also, whose name was also Sarah, so I wonder if they, it was just like a name, like a family name, um, three Sarahs, all died in the family. Um, Amelia went to live with her aunt in Bristol, um, and after that, she um, served as an apprentice corset maker. In 1859, her father died, and her eldest brother in inherited the entire family shoe business. Um, in 1861, when Amelia is 24, she stopped talking to at least one of her siblings, but a lot of people presume it was just all of them. She cut off ties with her family. And she married a man named George Thomas, who also lived in Bristol, so that's where she was living. Um, her husband, George, was 59, so it, George was 59 and Amelia's 24. 
Um, they both lied about their ages on the marriage certificate to lessen the age gap between them. So he said he, um, he subtracted 11 years and then she added six. So he was 48 and she was 30 on their marriage certificate. Um, so historically, a lot of confusion lies in her age um, because a lot of the sources believed the age listed on her marriage certificate was her real age, even though it's not. So after she married George Thomas, she began training as a nurse. Um, so she saw this as an ideal way to earn a living because she could have people come to her house. And like, so she got into the market. She gets into the market of baby farming, um, which this is a whole other like way crazy rabbit hole that I go down because um, I found this very interesting that this was a thing like this wasn't just Amelia Dyer this was a thing people did um I think she's just the most well-known person probably who did this um and maybe the most prolific person that did it um so she thought that she could have young women who had illegitimate pregnancies come to her house and then they could stay there until they had their babies for a fee, for a monetary fee. And then Amelia would presumably to either raise those children herself or adopt them off. So there was a woman named Ellen who had got Amelia into this business. She kind of turned her on to the idea of this. So from my presumption, Amelia was just trying to be a nurse. Like, she was just trying to live her life and have people come to her house and, like, take care of them and, like, cool. She was just going to be a nurse and help people. And then she met Ellen, and Ellen was like, well, you know how you can make a lot more money baby farming? Um, and actually, Amelia was forced to flee to the United States right after meeting Amelia um, so that she couldn't get any attention from the police. Like, she was on the run. So um, Ellen's on the run from the police. She teaches Amelia about this baby farming idea and then leaves the country, <laughs> which is not sketchy at all. So my rabbit hole is like, hey, why would a woman give up? Like, why would a woman give up? a an illegitimate child um knowing that there was a possibility they were giving their baby up to baby farming you know and like well okay I didn't really get into the dark side of baby farming and I mean we're going to in a little bit it's not good so it's it's really not a good idea and I'm assuming these women had a, a general idea of like what could possibly happen to their babies doing this type of thing um but so you know you know, why would you give up your baby if you knew it wasn't going to end well for said baby? And, like, laws and society were very different back then. So, I kind of go down a really, really long rabbit hole, so try to follow me here. Um, the Poor Law Amendment Act was passed in 1834. I'm not entirely sure how English laws work. I'm talking like an American, so sorry. It, it was, it was made like there's, they don't vote on these things. I don't think I have no idea. So the poor law amendment act of 1834 kind of screwed things up for people back then. Back in the day, there used to be a system called the English poor laws. And the system was what they called a quote, poor relief or a way to relieve poverty. The system existed in England and Wales and came from a late medieval and Tudor era laws that happened from 1587 to 1598. So in 1601, we'll get into what these laws are in a second, but in 1601, 
the Act for the Relief of the Poor happened. Um, it's also known as the Elizabethan Poor Law or the Old Poor Law. We'll get into what that means. Um, it formalized the previous poor relief practices that were already happening. So basically, there was a set of, like, there was a poor relief program in place. And in 1601, they made them, like, official. They're like, this is our, like, I'm assuming it's a lot like, um, oh, God, I can't think of it now. Welfare. Welfare. I think it's like American welfare in some, more or less, some degree. I mean, this is way more intense than welfare, but what I'm getting at is it's kind of like that. Um, so it, it, this old poor law formalized the relief practices that were already happening. It's, it specified things such as the impotent poor were to be cared for in an almshouse or a poorhouse. Um, this, um, this mainly applied to those who were lame, impotent, old, or blind. Like, people who were, like, not able to take care of themselves at all. The able-bodied poor were to be sent to a work, um, to work in a house of industry. Materials were to be provided for the poor so they could work. And the, quote, idle poor and vagrants were sent to a house of correction. Um, places where those who were also, quote, unwilling to work were set to work. Um, they would be whipped and worked hard, mostly beating, um, hemp. So they were, they were making hemp, beating hemp. I'm not entirely sure what that entails, but apparently it's very hard work. Um, people who worked there were predominantly women, about two thirds of them. And they were there because they were found guilty of theft, vagrancy, lewd conduct, and night walking, AKA sex workers. Most quote, prisoners were released after one to two weeks. So basically it's like if you were poor and you didn't have a job, you fell into one of these three categories and you were helped based on that. So either you literally couldn't take care of yourself and you were um, cared for, you were able-bought and you could be put to work and all your, um, all your supplies would be paid for and you would earn a wage from that. So basically like factory workers but back but the, in the day before factories and there were the idle poor so people who just like refused to work were sent to basically prison for two weeks to sent to hard labor and then released cool um so in 1834 a new poor law was passed so that was the old poor law this is the new poor law this was meant to change the earlier legislations and change the poverty relief system. So the point was to curb the cost of poor relief and address the abuse of the old system. Um, the point was to deter people from asking for relief. There were studies done and findings to promote this change. So um, many changes were implemented in the whole detail of the other things, but there's one in particular that we care about the most, and it's a driving factor for this story in general. So I'm just trying to go that things are changing. Times are a-changing in England. Um, so here's the main thing that changed. Mothers of illegitimate children should receive much less support, and poor law authorities should not attempt to identify the fathers and try to pay back the cost of child support to them. So basically, the old poor laws were giving illegitimate mothers a bunch of support of, like, I'm assuming monetary support to pay for their illegitimate child, and they were hunting down fathers of illegitimate children and paying them back, like if they were poor, paying them back back their child support is what I've gathered is how I've read that. Um, the, it was argued that by penalizing the fathers of illegitimate children, 
It was reinforced and pressured that the parents should marry. And, like, basically they felt like giving the mom a huge lump sum of money for having an illegitimate child was rewarding them for her failure to marry. So basically this whole thing was, like, get these people to marry and deal with their their illegitimate bastard child, basically. Like, just make them deal with it. Um, so it, this is a quote, um, taken right out of, I think either, not the law, but the, um, some, I don't remember the man, some man's review of like why they should instill this law. Um, the effect has been to promote bastardy, to make want of chastity on the women's part. Oh, sorry. I'm going to restart that because I marble mouth the whole thing. This was about the old poor laws. And how they were before. The effect has been to promote bastardy, to make want of chastity on the women's part of the shortest road to obtaining either a husband or a competent maintenance, and to ex- ex- encourage extortion or and perjury. Um, so basically people trying to obtain, like, they're make, basically making the woman to extort their husband and then marrying them. Well, not their husband, their father. Not their father, their dad. <laughs> the baby daddy. Yes. Okay. So, in so many words, because that was a mouthful, it removed the financial obligation from the fathers of illegitimate children, and when women were required to raise illegitimate children in a society where this type of lifestyle was frowned upon. Boom. This led to the practice of baby farming, where individuals would act as adoption or fostering agents in return for a single upfront fee, and the business would take care of the women until they gave birth, and then the unwanted children were left to be taken care of. I'm assuming that there were some places like this that were honest, well-to-do businesses. And in the case of Amelia Dyer and so many other people, this is not the case. Um, so the problem, as I said, or in my opinion, well, not my opinion, but it could be, it could be argued as a good business model is that, um, Couples and parents were usually extorted during this, quote, single one-time fee. If the couple was well-off and wanted to keep the birth a secret, the fee could be as high as, like, 80 pounds. An additional 50 could be tacked on if the dad wanted his involvement kept quiet. So, a secret. Usually, though, it was the impoverished expecting mothers, and their fee was usually about 5 pounds. So, just to see, like, the hike up they could do depending on, like, your situation. Your situation, as you could call it. Um, babies were often starved to save money and sometimes speed up death. Noisy babies were sedated with alcohol or opiates. So the whole, the whole bad thing about this is that people were starting to try to find ways to kill these babies faster, which is a really gross sentence to utter. So, because... You know, basically, you got the one-time fee from the mom. The mom was off and doing her own thing. And then you had this baby you had to deal with. But if you don't want to deal with the baby and you wanted to make your money, like, the money was presumably to take care of the child. But if you were greedy and you just wanted the money, you have to eliminate the child at some point. See? That's how people were thinking. Um, so, if for some reason a mother wished to return and check up on her child. She would often hear every excuse in the book as to why she couldn't present the infant. And if there were, if, if the woman were suspicious of foul play happening, she wouldn't go to the police, you know, from either fear or shame or like knowing what she did. Um, 
And in fact, even authorities had issues tracking down reported missing children. So you could report the baby missing if if you got the willy to report this infant missing. You know, they probably weren't going to find it anyways. So in 1869, Amelia's husband, George Thomas, died. By then, she had left her nursing career after the birth of her daughter, Ellen Thomas, and I'm assuming it's named after the Ellen that got her into baby farming. Um, she was a widowed single mother and needed a way to make money, more or less. Um, and Amelia's greed took over quickly. I'm not sure how long she was baby farming before she kind of, like, went real south. Um, the timeline here is a little fuzzy. So she advertised that she would take on expectant women... Um, and obviously providing them room and board until the baby was born. Then she would say that she would nurse and adopt the baby. This way, she could come up, she could up that one-time fee for something a lot more expensive, saying she needed to buy sufficient food and clothing for each child up until it got adopted. Um, she assured possible clients that she was respectable and married. And in 1872, she made that lie a reality by marrying William Dyer. They had two children together, and eventually she left them. Well, him. She, the kids were both around. Um, her greed eventually gets to, like, just astronomical proportions. Um, Amelia found out that instead of starving the children and neglecting them, uh, which to her was inconvenient, she could just murder them and immediately save on, um, the opiates, alcohol, and frustration and caring for the children until they died. So they used to sedate children, like, the, the fussy babies would be sedated with opiates, um, like I said, or alcohol, and if she just murdered the children, she didn't have to do any of that, um, which saved her time, money, and effort, in her opinion. Um, this, unfortunately, um, obvi- and also obviously, garnered a lot of attention from the police. She was caught in 1879 after a doctor was suspicious about the number of children that had died under her care. Um, she wasn't convicted of murder or manslaughter, but she was sentenced to six months of hard labor for neglect. Allegedly, and I use that term, allegedly, this quote destroyed her mentally, but other people who were around her during this time saw her punishment as easy for her crime. Um, and this is time for me to be the devil's advocate on this one, um, I realize the argument that you can't say someone isn't, um, having a bad day just because you're having a worse day type mentality. Um, everyone can have a bad day in their own right and can be affected by a situation regardless of how lenient another could see it. So imagine you're in, um, hard labor for whatever, and you think this baby murderer is having an easier task than you who maybe like stole a piece of bread or something like that. Um, and so you could say, like, oh, it destroyed her mentally, wah, 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 like, she murdered babies. I- I'm being Switzerland in this case of, like, I get both sides. If you could, you know, maybe that labor was really hard for her and it kind of messed her up in the head. Or maybe it didn't and she was being treated really easily comparatively to other people around her. Um, you know... I realize that I'm I'm kind of defending a child killer here, so it's not the right time to, like, step up and point that out. But I'm going to be the devil's advocate and say, like, you know, maybe other people thought her work was really lenient, but, you know, maybe it really did mess her up in the head and make all this worse, is all I'm saying. Um, so she was released, and she started to restart her nursing career, um, but she would often end up in mental hospital 
mental hospitals due to her mental instability and suicidal tendencies. Um, but it should be noted that all of these uh, mental instability, these mental flare-ups and trips to the mental and mental hospitals were conveniently timed. Um, that's just avoiding capture by police. Anytime things got hairy or people wanted to question her or she was like, her her credibility was brought into question, she would end up in a mental asylum, is all I'm saying. Um, it's also suggested that she began, abu- began to abuse opioids and alcohol herself in her um, early career of like baby farming. Um, and her mental instability could have been related to alcohol or to substance abuse. In 1890, she oversaw the care of the bastard child of a governess. The governess returned to visit the child, and when she was presented with a baby that she wasn't sure was hers, she checked for an obvious birthmark the child had when she left. Noticing the mark was not there, the authorities were called on Amelia Dyer again. Um, She drank two bottles of laudanum, um, which I'm assuming is a serious opiate, um, to try to act like to seriously kill herself, but the drug use had been so heavy that she didn't overdose and survived the attempt like unharmed. Just to give you like a like an idea of how much how much drugs she was using. Um so when she didn't die and she needed an income as one does, um she so her issue in the past leading up to this point, which is strange as she didn't consider this beforehand. Um, she realized her mistake in getting death certificates for all the children that she murdered, which I mean seems like step one in becoming a murderer. Don't get a death certificate for the person that you kill. You would assume. Um, so basically, she was getting doctors involved to declare the baby deceased, and then subsequently, the doctor would aid in the disposal of the body. So take it away, cremate it, do whatever she wanted. May have been an issue of morality. Like her compass wasn't completely in the garbage. Like she was like, well, shit, I just murdered a baby for money. But like, I'm going to have this doctor come and do the death certificate and last rites and all that and like have this baby properly buried. So either at some point she's like, shit, I didn't die and I need money and I can't do this death certificate thing anymore because it's gotten me, it's burned me too many times leading up to now. I, you know, I don't know if she was just stupid or if she was, like, very religious and looking out for the the last rites of these babies that she was murdering, which seems like a weird time for you to be, like, <coughs> sorry, for you to be, like, oh, I need to care about these children after you've murdered them. You should have cared about them before you murdered them. I, you know, it is what it is. This happened so long ago, and I'm not, I can't stop Amelia Dyer. Um... So, with that, she began to dispose of the bodies herself. She was still too weird, though, because, like, she was just so over the top with all of her actions. So, the police were on her tail. Like, the police never left her alone, because obviously she was baby farming for money. So, it doesn't matter that you're handling things now, too. People are still bringing children to you, and they're still mysteriously disappearing. You idiot. Um, so, she was moving from town to town to avoid capture, um, she opened baby farms consistently using several different names. Um, sometime during this period, Amelia landed herself in the Somerset and Bath Lunatic Asylum. She most likely had a, quote, breakdown to avoid police capture and ended up here. Um, 
something happened there and it appeared she had such an awful experience that she she quoted she's like I will never go to another asylum again and she didn't she was discharged in 1893 in 1895 she moved to Caversham she made a friend named Jane Smith who Amelia found while she was in a workhouse for a short amount of time. Um, so she basically moves to Reading with her mother and her, or with her daughter and her husband. Um, curiously, up until now, Amelia hasn't really gotten herself into way too much trouble. She's been able to avoid a lot of consequences and hasn't really ended up in jail, which, like I said, is curious and surprising. Um, and I say this only because Amelia Dyer is about to fuck up, like, pretty, pretty good. Um, which she has all this time beforehand. I don't know how she didn't get caught and, like, put in prison for a very long time. Or hanged, as they liked to do back then. So, here's, here's the downfall of Amelia Dyer. And actually, so, real quick sidebar. I mean, when you go to click on this... Well, obviously, you already did. You saw the post on Instagram, I'm assuming, because you're here. Um, she's fucking crazy looking. Like, at least the picture that I know I'm going to use, because I've already seen it. I've seen it, like, five times, like, while searching for this. Like, she's a variant. I would not pass my children off to this woman to be like, yes, you can totally watch my kid and adopt her off. You're not going to do anything crazy with it, right? You'll see. I say you'll see, but you have already probably have seen. It's fine. Um, okay, so it's January 1896. Crazy looking crazy lady is back at it. She's gonna get her comeuppance. There's a popular bar named, barmaid named Evelina Marmon. She's 25 years old and has given birth to an illegitimate child named Doris. Her plan was to adopt her daughter out, like, to do this, like, well, obviously she wouldn't call it baby farming, but she was to go to this hospital to raise her, like, to go through labor, have this baby, and then adopt it out, and then get it back, ultimately. She placed an advertisement in the newspaper to do this. She said, wanted respectable woman to take young child. Her idea, ultimately, was she was going to adopt up her baby for just a little bit, basically foster her kid out, go back to work and save up a bunch of money, and then reclaim her child when she was financially able to, was her goal. Unfortunately for Evelina, like, and I mean, she probably thought this was like a godsend, like, wow, this is such perfect timing. There was an ad in a nearby town that said, married couple with no family would adopt healthy child, nice country home, terms 10 pounds. So Evelina reached out to the ad, um, this person was named Mrs. Harding, um, not Mrs. Harding. Mrs. Harding said she didn't want a child for money's sake, but for company and home comfort. Um, she said, myself and my husband are dearly fond of children. I have no child of my own. A child with me will have a good home and a mother's love. So as I'm sure you guessed, Mrs. Harding is not Mrs. Harding. It's Amelia Dyer. Um, Evelina wanted to do a payment plan for the 10 pound fee because that was a lot for her. Um, but Amelia refused and insisted on the one time fee. Evelina agreed because she thought, you know, like, this lady looks kooky and is maybe just a little bit too old to be adopting a child, but she seemed nice enough and got along well with Doris. So, she was like, fine, cool, whatever. They completed the transfer, and Evelina was actually surprised at how well um, she did with Doris. So, she's like, sweet, you know, this was worth my time and my money. Cool. I found my daughter a good home. 
They parted ways. Um, Mrs. Harding wrote a letter to Evelina saying that everything had gone smoothly and everything was going well, and Evelina replied but got no response. Evelina thought that Mrs. Harding was heading back to Reading, um, where the ad was posted and her alleged address, but Amelia didn't go there. Um, she went to a next town over to be in cahoots with her daughter and son-in-law. Um, so Amelia Dyer took white edging tape used for dressmaking, wound it twice around Doris's neck, and tied a knot. The baby would die slowly, but Dyer would later say that she used to like them, um, she used to like to watch them with the tape around their neck, but it, soon it was all over with them. So this was her, her preferred way to put, to kill these infants, basically. Um, Amelia and her daughter wrapped the baby up in some cloth, and they kept the clothes that Evelina packed for her baby and pawned whatever they didn't want. On April 1st, another baby named Harry Simmons was brought to the house. There was no edging tape available this time, and Amelia took the length off of Doris's corpse and strangled the little boy. He was only 13 months old. The next day, both babies were wrapped in a rug, taken to Reading, and forced through the railings and tossed into the River Thames. What Amelia didn't know was that on March 30th, 1896, um, a bargeman found a package in the river. It hadn't been weighted properly, and they found the body of a little girl named Helena Fry inside. The police that found and investigated the package used microscopic analysis to find a name on the package, and it was Mrs. Thomas and an address. This was more than enough to lead the police to Amelia, because um, I'm assuming that was one of her fake identities and her address she was using. In order to get more evidence against her, they put her on home surveillance. The police used a young woman as a decoy, um, knowing that Amelia would know um, instantly what they were up to, so she would react if she knew the police were on her. Um, she was a very volatile woman. They were trying to do this without her going to an insane asylum. They wanted to catch her in the act so they could be like, ha-ha, you're doing this. You can't fake that you're, you know, insane right now. We're going to catch you and fucking lock you up. So, they were using this decoy to A, prove that she was running this shady baby farming business, and B, seize a reliable opportunity to arrest her. So, she couldn't pretend she was crazy. They're like, we're going to fucking arrest you. Um, so, police raided her home on April 3rd, which was Good Friday. They set up an appointment for the decoy lady, and they basically, when she opened the door to... Um, take this appointment. It was the police there. They didn't find any human remains in the house, but it reeked of human decomposition. They found white edging tape, telegrams about adoption arrangements, receipts from pawn shops for babies' clothing, and receipts and letters from mothers asking about their children. She was arrested on April 4th and charged with murder. Her son-in-law was charged in an accessory. Um, they found more, or six more bodies in the River Thames, including Doris and Harry. Each baby was strangled with white tape, and Amelia later told the police, quote, it was how she could tell it was hers. Eleven days after handing over her child, Evelina had to identify her daughter's remains. Just so fucking sad. Um, on May 22nd, 1896, Amelia Dyer pled guilty to one count of murder, that of Doris Marmon. Her friends, family, and acquaintances testified against her, saying that they were increasingly suspicious of her, and her daughter gave the evidence that put the nail in the coffin, though. Um, 
Amelia Dyer and her defense claimed that she was insane. After all, she had been committed to an asylum on two separate occasions. The prosecution was able to persuade the jury that these trips to the asylum were simply Amelia's way to avoid capture. It took the jury four and a half minutes to find her guilty. Her daughter was supposed to go to trial um, for her part in the crimes, but the charges were dropped. Um, kind of somewhere along this thing, they realized that her daughter really didn't have any kind of... She wasn't a major part of it, and neither was her son-in-law. So they were kind of just shuffled off and like, oh, they realized they got the actual bad guy. She was executed. So Amelia Dyer was executed by hanging on June 10th, 1896, um, and she left five exercise books, which I'm not sure, like I'm assuming just notebooks, um, filled with her, quote, last true and only confession. When she was on the scaffold awaiting her hanging, she said, I have nothing to say and was dropped at 9 a.m. on the dot. The exact number of how many children Amelia Dyer murdered is unknown. There are at least 12 positively confirmed, but it's suspect that there could be anywhere from 200 to 400 children that met their fates due to Amelia Dyer. So she's known as the Ogress of Reading, and there's actually a song written about her. I don't know the tune, but I, I, I copied it so I could read it to you. So this is a song that they sing about Amelia Dyer, and it goes, The old baby farmer, the wretched Miss Dyer, at the old bailey her wages is paid. In, long, in times long ago, we'd made a big fire and roasted so nicely that wicked old jade. Um, so basically, if they hadn't hung her, they wanted to burn her for being a witch. Um, because of Amelia Dyer, adoption laws were made more strict, trying to shut down the baby farming, um, but years after Dyer's death, it was still continuing on, and it went on for a long time. It was a very difficult thing to, um, really get their hands on, especially because it was so secretive. Um, so that was Amelia Dyer. This is Cabernet and True Crime. Um... I hope you're as excited as I am for all the good things coming up, um, because it's just really going to be a good time. I am excited for the future of Cabernet and True Crime, and really excited all over just for, like, all the shit, like, all the good shit that's coming in my life. You know, you send out positivity, and you get it back, and just, I mean, thank you guys for your support, especially, um, I love that her Instagram name is Chizzo, um, a cherry sherry cherry i still don't know message me tell me what you're real and how you pronounce your name because i'm just gonna keep saying it wrong in my head i say cherry she's like a fucking goddess she's just amazing um she tells me all these nice things all the time <laughs> and she had a really good point that you know if i was getting stressed out about stuff you know this is supposed to be something that i love doing and i do love doing this this is my passion i love this so much and she was saying that if I was getting so stressed out about things, it, it, at that point it turns into something that if I don't even like it anymore, then why bother doing it, you know? And I don't ever want to get so stressed out about this that I don't like doing it anymore. That's like the saddest thing that could ever happen to this podcast and this account. So thank you for reminding me where my priorities are and where my head should be and all this. I really appreciate it. And just in general, you guys are the fucking bomb.com and you're just like ultimately the greatest people I've ever met. Well, once again, not met, but no in my entire life. So with that, this has been Cabernet and True Crime, your True Crime Tuesday. I owe you a patron exclusive something or other, and I'll catch you guys next week.